People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. My guest today is someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time, and who you will know, the voice of whom you will know, because he worked on Fine Music Radio as a volunteer for some 10 or 12 years. But more importantly, he was a Member of Parliament for 12 years, representing the PFP and then the DA, but also was on the staff of the Mission of South Africa to the UN, where he served as South Africa's representative on the Third Human Rights Committee, and he was appointed there by none other than Nelson Mandela himself. I'm talking about Peter Soule, who many of you will remember as one of our Ebullion presenters. As I said, Peter, Peter Soule, welcome. It's great to have you here on Fine Music Radio. A warm welcome to you. Now, you've told me all along that you've missed broadcasting, but you really loved it, didn't you? I mean, you came to Cape Town, you and your wife, phoned Fine Music Radio and just loved it. Yes, indeed. Do you know why you wanted to go on to Fine Music Radio? Well, not really. I heard uh, someone saying that we're looking for volunteer presenters oh. and would I come in for an interview, which I did. And I had the interview and I was asked, yes, to, to present Classical Choice on a Thursday morning from 9 until 12. And I did that for just over 10 years, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But you've said, Peter, both on your biographies for Fine Music Radio, that you didn't know anything about music. You loved music, but you didn't know anything about That's music, but that you learned so much on the way. Well, so much, yes. I mean, so, but while in public life, I became fascinated with the media in general and broadcasting in particular, becoming the media spokesman for my party. I then called for the establishment of an IBA, that is an independent broadcasting authority, in order to remove control of the airwaves from the bureaucrats and the SABC. The head of the SABC at the time poo-pooed the idea. I can imagine. And said his corporation could manage the airwaves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Eventually, at the Kempton Park talks, we produced a bill that provided for the opening of the airwaves and the multiplicity of voices. And for the radio frequency spectrum a limited natural resource to be placed in the hands of an independent body. The bill broke the monopoly of the SABC, monopoly that they had over broadcasting, and I subsequently served on the team to choose the first council of the Independent Broadcasting Authority. That was a major event, Peter, because remember, the SABC had complete monopoly. Absolutely, Everything was yes. SABC. Yeah. And suddenly we had 702 and a host of other radio stations that have completely opened. And now the IBA, I think it's called ICASA. But you still are interested, aren't you, in media, very much so. Oh, indeed, yes, I always have been. Both radio, television, and print media in mm -hmm. particular, yes. Because during your career, you were as a typical politician, you made sure you got as much press coverage as possible, yes, which was I, important, wasn't it? I had, a, I had a good media profile as a politician. You did. Yeah. And it was, am I right in saying it was Johannesburg North, wasn't it? That was my constituency, yes. Now, that's a very big constituency. Well, it's a long, narrow constituency all up against the 
northern boundary of the municipality of Johannesburg. Oh, okay. Yeah. Didn't go into Santon. Okay, but it was, it had places like Houghton. No, the edges of Houghton. Oh, Houghton was a separate constituency. Okay. It was Melrose and Ilovo mm-hmm. in the east and across the west. But I used to say it spanned about 60 years of South African history because <laughs> it ran from Louis Boerter Avenue to Barry Herzog Avenue. Oh, right, yeah. yes. But, Peter, it was also, it was a very safe constituency, wasn't it? It was uh, safe in the hands of the safe, DA. Safe as houses, yes. And became even safer over the 12 years. The jury in part. You're not boasting, are you, at well, the moment? <laughs> I think I had something to do with it. Yeah. 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 We're going to cover, I hope, Peter, some of your parliamentary career in more detail in a moment. But um, there were various people with whom you became very friendly. Uh, for example, Colin Eglin was a very close friend of yours. Yeah. And Helen Sussman Indeed. was a very close friend of yes. yours. And I was surprised to discover that Helen Sussman was never the leader of the party. I kind of automatically assumed she was the leader of the party, especially back in the days of the Progressive Federal, uh, the Progressive Party. Yes, but were, she was never leader, was she? No, there were people who wanted her to be the leader, and she refused. And she was quite right, because Helen was an outstanding person on many fronts. But she was a very poor administrator. And she wouldn't have made a good leader. But she was good in Parliament, wasn't she? Outstanding. She was on her own for so many years as well. Yes, yes. 13 years. On her own? On her own, yeah. I think it even affected her voice. I remember interviewing her one day, and I I have to say I was rather intimidated. Yes. And she had this rather gravelly voice, and apparently that was as a result of her having to scream at the gnats. Yes, having to speak loud enough over there shouting, yes. Peter, tell me just quickly one of the anecdotes. I mean, you've told me many anecdotes over the years, but famously when Favot was assassinated, he was stabbed by Tsefendas in the house, in his chair, yeah. and P.W. Boerter raced across to Helen and said, it's all your fault. That's Is right. that right? Yes. Helen told the speaker, and the next day he called Helen to his office, and sitting there was P.W. Boerter, <laughs> and he stood up, P.W. did, and he said, in terms of the rules, I apologize, and <laughs> Which, walked out. <laughs> in other words, it wasn't his real apology. No. But apparently he was quite aggressive to Helen in that chaos at the time. And always. Now, I'm most intrigued to know what music you've chosen, Peter. And I have to say, I quite like the first one. You've chosen an aria from Samson and Delilah, the opera by Saint-Saëns, Softly Wakes My Heart. I won't even try and pronounce it in yes. French. And we were trying the other day, you and I, to decide which recording to use. We tried Maria Cullis, who does it magnificently. And then I suggested Marilyn Horne, who's my favorite. And I think I swayed you over immediately. I, indeed. I like that recording, and I'm, I look forward to hearing it. Is it just a song that you've loved for lo- as long I love as you it. know? I, you know, of all the love songs written, I think this is one of the more beautiful. Mm, absolutely. Uh, okay, yeah. here's Marilyn Horne. Singing this song, Softly Awakes My Heart, from Samson and Delilah, by Saint-Saëns.
That was that rather beautiful aria from Samson and Delilah by Sansan, Softly Awakes My Heart, and you heard the voice of Marilyn Horn, that lovely mezzo sound that you made. The first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Peter Soule, whom, as I said at the beginning, many of you will know not only as a presenter on Fine Music Radio for some 10 years, but also as a very effective a member of parliament for 12 years. But Peter, I want to go back. I mean, you come from, may I say, you come from humble beginnings. You were born in northern Rhodesia, but you spent a lot of time in Benoni in a very kind of, what would you say, middle-class family. Was there any, at that early stage, before you went into your first jobs, was there any interest in politics before we get into how you got into politics? Yes, I come from a very ordinary background. My father was a boilermaker. During the Depression, he went to northern Rhodesia to the Copper Belt because his brother wrote and told him there was work there. Uh, and uh. he'd left school at Standard 4, at the end of Standard 4, because his father had died. Yeah. And he had no qualifications at all. And he was a, a handyman on, on the copper mines. And he then got my mother, very brave on her part, to go up there and marry him <laughs> when he had no security. Yeah. <laughs> they came back to South Africa. We lived in Johannesburg for a short while before he got a job in Benoni at Dunswart Iron and Steelworks. And he qualified there as a boilermaker. Uh, so, yes, that was our background. We lived in a small flat in the centre of town in Benoni, and it was very ordinary. But you had, I mean, you had various jobs at that time, Peter, didn't you? You ended up working for a mining company, or just just tell me about your early career. Oh, well, I started working on the mines as an official learner, going underground and learning to be an official. Uh-huh. Then I was involved in a motor car accident, and I was told I had to give up the underground work. Did you literally go underground? Did yes. you have to go underground? Yes, yeah, every day. So you didn't yeah. suffer from claustrophobia? No, not at all, no. Although I am claustrophobic, surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, interesting. That's interesting. So I then worked in the office, and I was transferred to head office at my agitation, I must admit. And I worked at Union Corporation. Uh, How did you get out? I mean, there you were, you were in the mines, and you yes. worked at, well, at yeah, Union Corporation. As a clerk, and I was studying to do... Uh, office management. Yes, because you were a chief accountant as well with yeah, Mitchell yes. Cotts. You have a financial yes. director and administrative manager. So admin and finance was always important to you. But I, I applied for the job at Mitchell Cotts Engineering, yes. I went to work there in Wadeville uh, until I went back to Johannesburg. Well, you were still in Benoni at that time. Were you married at that time, yes, Peter? Because you uh, married uh, the uh, lovely uh, Audrey. Audrey and I were married, yes. We got married in 1963. And we moved to Johannesburg. I eventually convinced her that we should move to Johannesburg in 1979. But you know what, Peter? I don't know if anyone in Johannesburg is going to be listening at the moment. But um, there's the lovely story you tell about sending off, because Audrey didn't want to go to Johannesburg. So you sent her off to look for a house. And she found one in Parkhurst. And you said, what? Parkhurst? Yeah. Well, at that time, it was known as a place for meter readers and, <laughs> bus, and, and bus conductors, yes. 
But and now, look at it. Look at it now. But you had a lovely house. We had a lovely house. Yeah. She chose gorgeously. You had three children, didn't you? Yes. Stephen, Kate, and Sue. And, and Sue, yes. And Stephen sadly died very recently. Yes, earlier this year. Yes. Yeah. Peter, just yeah. um, uh, but uh, what I'm trying to find is how did you get involved in politics? My father was an active member of the old White Labour Party, so we had politics at home. He was very active, so I was interested. And I was appalled at the way in which people of colour were treated in this country. Even as a young man? Yes. A very young man? Yes. So when I got involved, I looked around, and the Progressive Party was formed in 1959, and I joined them immediately and became involved and worked my way through the ranks and eventually became the MP for Johannesburg North. Yes, but you've jumped a lot now, yeah. because when you first started, you were like a campaign person, weren't you? You didn't immediately become the MP for no, Part-Time no, no, North. No, 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 quite right. No, I, was, I, I worked my way through. Mm. I, worked, I worked on campaigns. Who, Peter, was the leader of the party then? Can you remember when you joined back in the 50s? A, a, a man called Jan Statler. Jan Statler. He was the MP for Queenstown. Wonderful man. Mm -hmm. yeah. He was succeeded by Colin. Okay. Yeah. And Helen was never the leader. That's yeah. right, as yeah. we said earlier. Yeah. But Helen at that stage was in Parliament, wasn't she? That's right. She'd as the sole voice. Yes. yes. As the sole right. voice of... Because um, we couldn't... In, in the three elections between 61 and 70, we couldn't elect anybody but Helen. Mm-hmm. And Colin then and Helen, they agreed that if at the next election we only elected Helen, we would pack up because there was no point in carrying on. Yeah. And we won seven seats in that election. But this is because of Colin Eglin, isn't yes. it? And we're going to come back to that. But Dynamic, now yeah. we have another piece of music, Peter. Uh -oh. And you've chosen Jerusalem. Yes. The famous uh -oh. <laughs> Jerusalem. Now, I mean, I don't even think I need to ask you because it's a moving hymn, really, isn't it? Well, I... I went once to the Royal Albert Hall, mm. which was packed. It was probably the last night of the proms. Yeah, I, it was. Which you could never get into. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how your, we got in. Yes. You used your yeah, influence. Yeah. Sang Jerusalem. Yeah, they do. And it was tingling. Mm. Yeah. I've always loved it, yes. So uh, here we have Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yes.
that beautiful hymn, Jerusalem, there. It's goose flesh stuff. I remember, Peter, I'm going to boast now. I also got into the last night of the proms. Oh. And when you stand there with 6,000 people singing that and Land of Hope and yeah. Glory, it's quite a thing. But you have traveled extensively, haven't you, once you were a member of Parliament? I enjoy traveling, and I've made a point of visiting all the countries that I wanted to see. So I think I've done most of the world that that is of interest to me. Yeah. I know if I ask you what your favorite was, you'll say New York, and we'll talk about your New York yeah. stay in a moment. But apart from New York, what was your favorite? Oh. Is it difficult? Yes, Europe. I, I, Europe. I enjoyed Europe generally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you've been to the Far East as well, yeah, haven't yes. you? And I'm not, not hooked on the Far East. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you also met many, many politicians. I mean, I know you went to the UK and met the famous politicians of the day. Yes. Uh, David Steele is a great pal of mine, the That's former right. leader of the Liberal Party. And we still have frequent contact, yes. There's a lovely story, Peter, that you tell of David Steele and you touring Soweto, and it had something to do with a dead dog. <laughs> yes, we. I took him to see a house, and outside the house was a pile of rubbish. And lying on the top of the pile of rubbish was a dead dog. <laughs> A photographer from the Star, the Johannesburg newspaper, mm -hmm. took a, a photograph of David and I standing next to the pile of rubbish with the dead dog. And that afternoon I took David to the airport and off he went to Botswana, then to Zambia and so on. But the next Saturday morning on the front page of the Star, there was the picture of Steel and Soul and the dead dog. <laughs> <laughs> because you did entertain a lot of politicians and diplomats here in South Africa, showing them around Soweto, yes. showing them the problems that apartheid had created, Yeah, and thereby met many of them as well. But you know the other story I want you to tell, Peter, and, I, and this is to do with Margaret Thatcher visiting Helen Sussman, uh, and the cat apparently... Bitter. Is that true? Scratched her leg. Scratched her leg. Then it bled. Leg. They went to Soweto. Oh. They, Helen said she was asked to take Margaret Thatcher to Soweto. Uh -huh. And she said afterwards, I took Margaret Thatcher to, to Soweto. Margaret Thatcher took me to Soweto. <laughs> yes, typical. And I invited her back to my house for tea. And while we were having tea, the cat came in and scratched her leg to the extent that it bled. David Steele, the next time he visited, he said, where's the cat? I want to smoke it. Because <laughs> David and Margaret Thatcher weren't great pals. I so. can imagine, not yeah. with him being in charge yeah. of the Liberal Party. Yeah. I mentioned Colin Eglin. You mentioned Colin Eglin. Apparently, I mean, Colin Eglin was rather an enigmatic person. He wasn't a sort of Helen Sussman or Fancel Slubbert. And yet you say he was an incredibly hard worker and knew how to campaign and was responsible for getting more of you into Parliament. He turned the fortunes of the party around in mm -hmm. the early 70s when he became the leader. He was dynamic. He was gruff. He wasn't easy to get on with, but we were great friends. Mm -hmm. And we were for many, many years, and I was very fond of him. And we got on extremely well. And I was very sad when he died. But yes, he was a great politician. He, yes. he, he understood what was going on and what was required. Yes. But he got you into politics theoretically, didn't he? By giving you your first job and then he said, don't worry, we'll send you to Anglo-American. I mean, he played a role in getting you on the path now, to I was, politics. I was a company secretary at a, at a, at a firm in Bromfontein at Johannesburg and Colin asked him if we could have lunch. 
soon after he became the leader, and he was jacking up the organisation. We had lunch, and he said, I want you to come and work for the party. Mm. You be the, be the director here in Johannesburg. And I said, wow, I mean, to work for a political party, there's not much future there. He said, no, I've arranged it an Anglo-American. They'll offer you a job after two or three years. So I thought about it. I thought it'll be fun. Mm. So I did it. Was your wife, Audrey, always supportive of your political yes. career? Yes, she was also a keen supporter of the Progressive Party, mm-hmm. yes. But then you worked for Anglo, but you didn't enjoy it, did no. you? I was stuck in a back room somewhere. Mm. No. I didn't mm. expect to be put out to the first floor, 44 Main Street. <laughs> but I thought I'd be a bit better than at a back room. But then what happened after that? So you didn't enjoy Anglo-American, but then? But then I was on the committee at Johannesburg North. And we had the 81 election, and Kobe Maria, the former judge, was our MP. Mm. And he said he wasn't going to stand again. But Slobbert asked him to stand in the election in case we didn't do well, and he needed to put somebody into Joburg North in a by-election. Well, in the event, we did very well, and and the seat wasn't needed. So we were going to have a by-election, and I thought I was on the committee but we had to get a top candidate. Mm. And then I, just, I I couldn't think of anybody, but I thought, what about me? Yeah. So I went home and I went to see my friend Humphrey Borkham, who was the chairman of the constituency. And I said, come to lunch. And we went to a restaurant in uh, Elof Street. And he said to me, hey, you're up to something, so <laughs> this is a fancy place. And I yeah. said, well, I, I don't think it's so fancy, but anyway. So when I told him, he said, no, that's a good idea. Yes, that's fine. I said, now let's talk about it. He said, no, 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 it's okay. Let's, how was your holiday? Oh, really? So yeah. that was it. I then became the MP for Joburg North in 1982. And you were elected to Parliament? Yes. And that was your career in that, Parliament? Then I stayed there until Parliament was dissolved in '94 with mm-hmm. the coming of the new constitution. Yeah. And that's why that story, apparently Nelson Mandela was with Helen, and she said, where's Peter? Yeah. And then afterwards, yes, uh, yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't working, but uh, Madiba went to see Helen, and they were sitting talking, and he said to her, where's Peter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when he offered you the United Nations post. Uh, well, he didn't offer that specifically, but he, he told the Department of Foreign Affairs to find me a job. Well, we'll talk about New York yeah. in a moment. But yeah. now, I know this next song, Peter, is very special for you. And sometimes when you're feeling particularly nostalgic, you kind of change its name to Audrey's song. Yeah. But it's any song by John Denver. And she, am I right to introduce she, it like that? She loved it as well, yes. And uh, your Audrey died about nine years ago, didn't she? Seven, yeah. Seven years yeah. ago. After a long marriage and three children. Fifty, fifty and a half years, yes. And absolute support she gave you all Total. along. It was a wonderful marriage, yes. Okay, here's Annie's song. And we'll dedicate this, Peter, to Audrey, your wife. Lovely, yes, thank you. You fill up my senses Like night in a forest Like the mountains in springtime Like a walk in the rain Like a storm in the desert Like a sleepy blue ocean You fill up my senses Come fill me again 
Let me give my life to you Let me drown in your laughter Let me die in your arms Let me lay down beside you Let me always be with you Come let me love you Come love me Like the mountains in springtime, like a walk in the rain, like a storm in the desert, like a sleepy blue ocean, you fill up my senses, come fill me. There you are, arguably John Denver's most famous song, Annie's Song, a very special song to my guest. Peter Soule, by the way, is my guest on People of Note this week. We're talking about his career as a politician, also his life in radio. But a very important part of your job, Peter, was when Nelson Mandela, as you said just before the music, sent you to New York. Just explain, it's, a, it's quite a complicated title the staff of the mission of south africa to the united nations where you served as sa representative on the third human rights committee that's quite a title what did you actually do there are five committees at the united nations in new york and the third one is the human rights committee and i served on that and mm -hmm. i served as south africa's representative now it doesn't it's not as grand as it sounds because there are 198 or so members of the United Nations, and each country has a representative on each committee. So at times it can be quite boring, mm. <laughs> because, you know, I was quite excited about going to the United Nations, being the crossroads of international diplomacy and politics. Very much so, gosh. But it's very repetitive. Any point of view, there are only five or six arguments and once those have all been rehearsed, then everybody wants to talk mm. because they've got to send a report back to their capitals to mm. say, I put our point of view. Not saying the point of view it had already been put, but it, it, so it, was, it, it was very repetitive. Was it administrative as well? 
And not so administrative. Uh, uh, no, not so administrative. Okay. Yeah. And was this in the house of the UN, the famous hall, no, there but were, in offices and things? Uh, yeah. There were halls around the place. Right. No, right that right. one was used, the famous one, mm-hmm. on big occasions. Okay, yeah. okay. And that's where all the ambassadors went, wasn't yes. it? I know you said you, you were lucky because you were a diplomat and you were given a lovely flat in yes. the middle of New York yes. up on the 18th floor. 18th floor of 88th and Broadway. Uh-huh. Yeah. Big diplomatic plates on my motor car <laughs> so I could park without getting a ticket and you really lapped up New York didn't Love, you? it's a wonderful city mm-hmm. wonderful city uh, the Delhi of course is Zabar's on the corner of 80th and Broadway I used to go there on a Saturday morning and buy a whole pile of food my wife said I used to spend more there on a Saturday morning than she spent the whole week <laughs> <laughs> it was it's a wonderful place Still there, and you were four. You you were there for four years. Four years, yeah, which Gosh. was wonderful. At that stage, South Africa was kind of a, a accepted, wasn't it? You didn't have to fight all sorts of things. Like oh, no, no, because it was after ninety four. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Just being there, being part of the whole scene, you, you said how you loved walking up and down the streets, and you've been to Broadway, you've been to the Metropolitan Opera, you've been to Carnegie yeah. Hall, you soaked up all that sort of thing as well. Absolutely. On Saturday morning, I used to walk down. Broadway, and do my shopping, mm. go to Zabar's and other places for my regulars. I just had a lovely time on a Saturday morning. I love the story uh, you tell, Peter, because Audrey was very enthusiastic, wasn't she, as always? Oh, well, she career. loved New York, yes. But didn't you joke with her and said, I could be the ambassador in some little place and we'd have a car and a chauffeur, or we could go to New York? Yeah. When I was offered a job by the Director General of the Department of Foreign Affairs, he said, I don't quite know what what to offer you. I can offer you a small uh, embassy somewhere where you'll be the ambassador Mm. and you'll have a house and a housekeeper and a motor car and a driver and so on. But I can offer you the number two job in New York uh, where you won't have any of, you'll have a flat, but you won't have any of those other benefits. I said, well, let me talk to my wife. And I went and told this to her. And she looked at me and she said, shook her head and she said, we're going to New York. Because <laughs> didn't you tease her and say you'd had accepted the other one or something? We could go to Burkina Faso. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. And then when you came back, it was the end of your period there or yes. your tenure there. And you went into a department in which you were not happy, were you? Well, I went to the Department of Foreign Affairs because they asked me to come. Because at the UN, I'd served on the committee that uh, monitors the Security Council. And, and, and the department had very little uh, experience of the Security Council. So they asked me to come back and establish a desk at Foreign Affairs. Mm-hmm. And I was offered an, another appointment. And it I says just, here, another posh title, Peter, yeah. Desk Officer at the South African Department of Foreign Affairs dealing with the UN Security Council matters. That's it. But you weren't happy there, were no, you? No, I wasn't happy with the bureaucracy. So after two years... And my wife wasn't happy in Pretoria. We had a lovely flat out in the eastern suburbs. But she wasn't all that happy. And one afternoon we were both shaking our heads. And I said to her, look, let's get out of here. Let's, mm-hmm. Because we had decided we were coming to Cape Town. Right. Let, let me resign and we'll, give, we'll sell the flat and let's go. Yeah. And that was, in fact, 
when you retired. That yes. was your official retirement. That was in 2000, yes. And you were happy to retire at that Absolutely. stage and leave yes. and just yes. move on. That's it. Come to Cape Town. But you knew Cape Town well, didn't you? Because you'd been here so often. Of you often, stayed at yeah, Acacia I'd, Park? I'd spent six months a year here for 12 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. No, so when I knew Parliament Cape Town. Was running. And we'll say we had decided that we would end up in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. So. And you never looked back, did you? No. I'm going to ask you for another piece of music. You've chosen a rather curious piece here, the Turkish March by Beethoven, which is quite a <laughs> quite a catchy piece. Is there any reason, or do you just like the sound I of it? Just like it, yeah. As Thomas Beecham says, the English don't care about music, they just like the sound it sound makes. Of it, yes, <laughs> okay. yeah. Here's the Turkish March by yeah. Beethoven. Beethoven's Turkish March. He actually wrote that for a set of incidental music for a play that he was asked to write, The Ruins of Athens or something like that, the Turkish March. Anyway, there we heard the Turkish March, and it was also another choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Peter Soule, whom, as we've been talking more about politics and your life, Peter, than music, but I know music has always been important to you as it was when you were on Fine Music Radio. But you know what I've always enjoyed, because I've been very lucky to get to know you, I just didn't have the odd drink with you, and listen to you reminisce about things, and you tell the most amazing stories from Parliament. Because one assumes that Parliament is terribly serious and terribly intense, but there were lots of light moments. I mean, one of the things that amazes me is how terrified people were of P.W. Borta. You said you wouldn't like him to shout at you like he did at people. Why were people terrified of him? Yeah, one of my first days in Parliament, he was on his feet, mm. and he was shouting at somebody on our benches. And I thought to myself, goodness, if he shouts at me like that, I'll just I'll curl up and die. <laughs> because he was, he was formidable, and he was a bully. Mm. I mean, there was no doubt about that. He bullied his way along. Uh, but there were all sorts of other moments once in the dining room. We used to sit in parties at tables of six or so, 
Mm-hmm. And I went in a bit late one day, and our tables were all full. So there was nowhere for me to sit. Otherwise, I saw a spare seat at a Conservative Party table. <laughs> With Andres Trenet. Yeah. And I sat next to Andres. And we chatted away because we used to see each other. I lived at the parliamentary village in Goodwood called Acacia Park. And, and, and so did Andres and his wife. And they used to go for a walk in the mornings. And I used to go for a swim in the summer on a bicycle that I had there. And I used to bump into them and greet them and we'd talk. And then he'd, during the course of the day, he said, oh, I saw you this morning. Or he said, oh, I didn't see you this morning or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So I went and sat next to him. And we were having lunch, and I said to him, Oh, you know what? If my people in Johannesburg North knew who I would having lunch with today, <laughs> there they, they would be a great deal of unhappiness. And he said, That's nothing. He said, If my people in the Waterbach knew who I was having lunch with, <laughs> there would be lots of unhappiness. <laughs> but Peter, apparently he was a very nice person. You had that nickname of Dr. No. Yeah, he, no, was, he was extremely well, right wing. He was a trade duomini. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, he was, he was charming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to get on very well with him. Did you get on well with people in the opposition benches, oh, like absolutely. the Nats, for example? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah well, some of the Nats, yeah, yes. Yeah. Some were a bit difficult, but, you know, some with whom you'd interchange across the floor of the house. Yes. Yes. Got to know them well and would have a drink with them Mm -hmm. on a Wednesday evening when we'd have a sitting. Did you have a favourite in the Nats? I mean, maybe you didn't because you were so anti them. But, I mean, you know, the great names like Adrian Flock and Magnus Malan and all the Pukbota. You said that you were wary of Pukbota. Yeah, I kept away. I kept out of his circle because he was very demanding. Mm. Uh, I, I imagined that he was very demanding. Yeah. Uh, so I kept out of his circle. But yes, the others, I mean, like Flock, he was great fun, Flock was. Mm. Uh, <laughs> tell the story in Pretoria, they have those long blocks, and halfway along the block they have a pedestrian crossing. Yes. And one day I was standing there half dreaming, waiting for the light to change, which it did. The other people walked off, so I went with them. And all of a sudden, in front of me, here was this voice, this face saying, Hey, soul! But you called him Flocky. Flocky, yes. I just want to fit this in quickly, Peter, because we're running out of time as always. But um, I remember one of the great crises in the the Progressive Federal Party, whatever it was in those days, was the sudden shock resignation of Frederick von Sell Slubbard, who was really the sort of matinee idol man. Golden boy. The golden boy. And then suddenly... He resigned. Yeah. And you got wind of this, didn't you? And on that fateful day, bumped into him in the lift. And yeah, you weren't the, that polite to him. On the Friday of the caucus, he advised the caucus. But on the Wednesday before that, Ken Owen came to see me because that week of the no confidence debate, editors and political uh, correspondents and, and journalists used to come to Cape Town mm. to listen to the debates and to attend meetings and talk to people and so on. So Ken came to see me, and I remember saying to me, what do you think about Slobbert going? And I said, going where? He's not going anywhere. He said, no, he's going to leave. I said, what? He said, he's going to leave Parliament. I said, impossible. It had leaked out. He'd had a meeting at his house the previous Sunday. He had one or two people there. And, of course, you're always going to tell one person. (laughs) Yes, the media. And they've got to tell one person. Yeah, 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 So I thought, I can't believe this. Then I went out of my office, and Alex Borain was coming down the steps. And I said, I can't remember how I put it, 
But I say, what's what's Van doing? And, and his response was something like, well, you can't expect him him to stay here forever. Oh, interesting. I thought, oh, bingo. Oh, yeah, That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now I thought, now who do I tell? Yeah. Oh, also, I've got to tell somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and I went and told Colin Eglin. But I remember you interrupted a meeting, didn't you? Colin Eglin was having a meeting with someone, and you went into his yes. office and said, Colin, he said, Peter, I'm busy, can't you, you see? Can't you see? Yes, and you said, is. no, 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 you no, need no, to hear no, this. No, you want to hear this, you <laughs> want to know, yeah. That's right, yeah. And then Colin got hold of Van hmm. to speak to him, and he said, have you told Helen? And he said, no, not yet. He said, I think you owe it to her. You yeah, must tell her. of course. So she knew on the Friday, and on that Friday, Helen always used to have a big lunch one politician, one journalist, one diplomat, and walking through the lobby, because then Slobbert asked us to have a quick caucus meeting at a quarter to two, where he would tell us, because mm. the others didn't know. Mm. And then Harry Schwartz said, oh, no, we've got to discuss this. So we said, no, we've got to go now. The bells are ringing. Mm, mm. So off we went, and afterwards we went back up to the caucus room, and Van said, look, there's no point. It talking now, it's done. Yeah. Mm, mm. What are we going to discuss? So he'd asked me to tell the journalists that he'd meet them in the in the auditorium. So off we we left the meeting, and I called the lift. Lift came, and I got in, and Van got in, and just the two of us went from the fourth floor <laughs> to the first floor. And I looked at him and I said, Van, you've dropped us in the dwang, and he said, it's done. Yeah. What can we yeah. do? And the door opened out. We and went, that was that. Yeah. Gosh, my goodness. Yeah. Colin took over from him, didn't he? Or Colin took uh, yes, Colin on Eglin. a temporary basis, yes. Yeah. And yeah. then Zach did. Zach yeah. Beer, that's Zach right. Beer, that's, yeah. Yeah. So it was a hectic 12 years in Parliament. <laughs> I loved it. But yeah. you lo- there you are. Yeah. You said you loved it. And you yeah. loved New York as well. Yeah. So, Peter, just before our last piece of music, you might not want to answer this question, because you are out of politics, but I know you're very interested. You watch news, you read books, you're an assiduous reader. I've noticed you read, you particularly enjoy political biographies and autobiographies. So it's a, it's a question that I suppose is expected. What is your opinion of what's happening in South Africa at the moment? Um, I think we're in a mess because we've got people who are inexperienced in government. But as always, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist. Always that we we muddle through, so we'll get there. Okay. Well, let's hope that good prevails. And yes, we, indeed. Peter, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you very much. And it sounds as though you've—I mean—you've had a lovely life, indeed. Indeed. Yes. Okay. So we're going to end now with another of your songs, which I know is <laughs> very sensitive to you and reminds you of Audrey. And that's Roger Whittaker, yeah. who you said had a Cape Town connection. He did. He went to UCT. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure he was born here, okay. but he certainly went to UCT. And I know that this is one of your favourites. Yeah, so it's a marvellous chap. Let's yeah. close off with Roger Whittaker with some lovely sentiments here. And Peter, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much. So, Peter but Sol, thank you for inviting me. Thank, thank you very you. much. And all strength to your arm. Thank you. The ship lies rigged and ready in the harbor Tomorrow for old England, she says Far away from your land of endless sunshine 
of my land full of rainy skies again And I shall be aboard that ship tomorrow Though my heart is full of tears at this farewell For you are beautiful And I have loved you dearly More dearly than the spoken word can tell For you are beautiful And I have loved you dearly More dearly than the spoken word can tell I heard there's a wicked war of late And the taste of war I know so very well Even now I see the foreign flag arrange Their guns on fire as we sail into hell I have no fear of death, it brings no sorrow But how bitter will be this last farewell For you are beautiful And I have loved you dearly More dearly than the spoken word can tell For you are beautiful And I have loved you dearly More dearly than the spoken word can tell Death and darkness gather all about me And my ship be torn apart upon the sea I shall smell again the fragrance of these eyes In the heaving waves that brought me once to thee And should I return safe home again to England I shall watch the English mist roll through the dead For you are beautiful And I have loved you dearly More dearly than the spoken word can tell For you are beautiful And I have loved you dearly more dearly than the spoken word can tell People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. <laughs>